Welcome back to Rethoughts. Today I sit down with Derek Porterfield. Derek is an author, musician, filmmaker, and father who has become a great friend of mine. I always gain something from having a conversation with Derek, so I hope you do too. If you want to support the show, you can like and subscribe on wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also leave us a review. If you want to go above and beyond to support our show, you can go to patreon.com slash rethoughts and subscribe there, pledging a couple dollars a month. Even the price of a cup of coffee goes a long way. Or you can go to rethoughts.com and visit our store. Thanks for listening. You wear a mask for so long, you forget who you were beneath. Thought has developed traditionally in a way such that it claims not to be affecting anything but just telling you the way things are. That doesn't make sense. Just when you think you know something, you have to look at it in another way. I know exactly what you mean. If you're real, you better tell me right now! What is real? How do you define real? Welcome to Rethoughts, a revolution of the mind. All right, welcome back. I am sitting here with my friend, Derek Porterfield, who is a man of many hats. He has his hands in a lot of different pies. Master of none. Yeah. (laughs) Master of no pies. Yes, master of no pies. But yeah, thank you for having me on, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, uh, Derek... uh, he writes poetry. I was wondering um, kind of where that journey began. You know, poetry is, is one of those things, uh, I, I consider it to be one of the most accessible art forms, right? We're, we're writing poetry from almost the first moment we start writing. It is that the, the words that kind of flow onto the page, you are in essence writing poetry. When you're, whenever you're coming up with something that's random or, or just kind of like a collection of of uh, you know, my daughter will write uh, the way she feels about, uh, most recently, a marshmallow. She gave me tasting notes on a marshmallow. That in itself is a type of poetry. So I think it's something that I've been doing for a very long time, but it, it became something that I was chasing a lot more earnestly when I started writing music. You know, yeah. you're, you're chasing a song, and so poetry becomes the means to an end uh, in that sense. And so it was this thing where I would have all these half-completed songs, and I would call them poems, right? And... Um, that was an unfair way to look at it. That was the wrong way to look at it. And so uh, more recently, I have uh, conceded that I, I might enjoy writing poetry on its own without turning it into a song and ended up releasing a poetry book. And now I, I do enjoy doing the the work of poetry where you're sitting down and, and uh, to reduce it down to something that I, I think is probably selling it short. It's essentially combining strange adjectives and things that people can <laughs> relate to in in a way that you hope sounds clever and I, that's what i love about poetry and you are a poet I, a little bit yeah, yeah. no you're doing, you're doing some really yeah I, I recently have read a couple of your pieces and i like that you're pairing uh drawings with your poems yeah. um I, I don't know what your first entry to poetry was but mine was shell silverstein Okay. And so uh, I love seeing line drawings with poems because it's a, it's a tie back to that nostalgia to my childhood, you know. Yeah. Um, and it 
gives my ADD adult brain something to latch onto as well. Okay. So, but yeah. yeah, I love what you're doing with poetry, man. Thank you. And that truck loved it too. <laughs> yeah, a little, ball, <laughs> little, ball, little moment of silence for the drive-by. No, uh, I was wondering, do you have any? Do you have a poem? And you don't have to have it immediately ready, but do you, do you have a poem um, that you wouldn't mind sharing? Oh sure, yeah. Um, let me. Uh, I will pull one up. I will pull yeah. one up. Um, yeah, sure. Um, and while you do that, uh, you know something else that comes to mind. Um, you know, you you mentioned poetry. We're kind of reducing these moments into a few words, right? Right. Um, yeah, I kind of see it as like distilling. Yes. Like yes. it's a distillery of a moment. You know, it's a a just it's a refining almost yeah you're taking an experience that, that someone else has had and you're providing uh what is hopefully a succinct uh representation of of how that felt how that um how living in that moment felt so that when someone else reads it it's like oh my god i i, I know this um and in some way um at least for me it's it's a, a sense of camaraderie right yeah. we are able to uh you and i can bond through experiences that we've never shared with each other, but like we have that shared experience of that feeling and, and mm -hmm. poetry does that better than almost anything else, uh, more effectively, more efficiently than almost anything else. I agree. Um, there was a, a friend of mine, he'd said, uh, in regards to one of my poems that, um, you know, the, I took, you took the ineffable and you effed it. <laughs> I and love I, that. I wish I'd come up I with that. I love, yeah. <laughs> that's a great, a great line. Yeah, you took the ineffable and you effed it. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great <laughs> line, things man. things we can't explain or, or put into words. Yes. And then you do it. You put it into uh, words. No, the, the, it's beautiful. Beautifully put. That needs to be on a coffee <laughs> yeah. mug. That's, that's great. It. <laughs> yeah. <F> it. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm, I, I recently, uh, when was this? Maybe... I don't know what day of the week it is. Two days ago, um, a guy named Matthew came through town. And I, I'm not going to butcher his last name because if someone tries to look him up, I, I hope that they're able to find him. I will figure <laughs> out who he is and I'll, I'll tell you. But uh, Matthew came through town and he is a poet. Uh, he is a uh, poet from the Bay Area that was brought in here from, uh, I believe, through WT. There were a couple okay. of professor-looking people that brought him in. And I ran into him at HPPR when I was doing a little interview with them. And the dude has a gift and you talk about being ineffable it is an ineffable gift right I, yeah. it is difficult for me to wrangle with words into like what he is doing what he is accomplishing the fact that he is a professional poet in 2022 is its own sort of yeah. strangeness right but i got to go see him read at the uh, downtown library and it was remarkable um, I, I, I felt horrible for the guy. Uh, his target audience is is largely older people. And so there was no applause or anything after he would finish his poems. And so there's there's this feeling of just like emptiness in the room mm -hmm. that, that added an awkwardness to the, the uh, back and forth. You know, like yeah. there's there's not a whole lot of interaction, which, you know, I play music. I crave that, right? Like like the whole reason I'm doing anything is for someone to pay <laughs> attention to me. And so I, I felt for him in that moment, but what he was reading was truly profound. It was in, in his gift. One, I'm, I'm not going to remember enough of his other poems to be able to like quote anything, but my very favorite phrase that he had was talking about someone reflecting upon an uncertain autumn. And I like the way that his words felt. And I think that's what good poetry is. It's yeah. just, it's your, 
uh, enjoying the feel of good words. Um, yeah. And that's a that's Patrick Rothfuss, I think. Um, okay. I so like yeah, Patrick he was Rothfuss. he was remarkable. Matthew's a party. Matthew is a. It starts with a Z. I just added him on Twitter. Let's okay. see if I can find him. Yeah, send him to me. Um, how how long of a poem do you want, man? I don't. I, I'm give just me, scrolling give me, through. Give me one. Like that... a, just a morsel, like a. No, give me a, give me a full poem and. Uh, let's. Uh, let's see. Give me one that you are proud of. I'll try this. So this is from the new book that I'm I'm supposed to already have out two months ago um, <laughs> uh, and, and I'll tell you I I feel guilty because we did this Kickstarter for it okay. and part of that Kickstarter is me calling and interviewing different people and writing poems specifically for them and uh, what I did not anticipate and this comes and goes in waves but I have enormous anxiety calling some of these people. Um, there, you know, some people—it's it's people that I've known for a long chunk of my life—and writing a poem about anyone is is kind of a strange thing. Uh-huh. But calling them and having a conversation about the poem I'm going to write for them has ended up being this very uh, crippling kind of thing. And so I'll pick up the phone and I'll be like, "I'm going to do this tonight." And I'm like, "Well, you know what sounds better." is baking a batch of cookies that takes two and a half hours. So that's what I've been doing is baking cookies. So I, I feel bad because I don't even really have a good excuse aside from just like an inability. Uh, no, it's not an inability. A uh, refusal <laughs> to face my fear and uh, and get over the the just being a bitch about it. Yeah. <laughs> and I need to just call these people. So I feel guilty. Uh, but this is from that book. Uh, it's called Things I Love. I love long walks during sunset with a podcast on my headphones. I love quiet cooking in the evening with wine while I'm alone. I love the sound of my daughter laughing while chasing our dog through the house. And I love that feeling of accomplishment after conquering all of my ever-present doubts. The sound of leaves under your feet when walking in early fall. The taste of coffee and chocolate and cool morning and mockingbird songs. The way it feels when you hold hands for the first time. The smell of her perfume when the wind blows just right. The taste of her lips when I was still nervous to kiss them, and the way that our hearts seemed to suddenly change rhythm. I love the road trips that you don't plan. Ramen restaurants and movies about Japan. I love the way that the world feels more romantic late at night, and I love the color of every girl's eyes. I think it's really just the girls that I like, but I love the glimmer that's inside. Before something within us fades. I love the way we bathe in a constant stream of misery, but every day move on willingly. There's something absolutely inspiring about that. Don't you think? I love good wine. I love music and crunchy guitar tones. I love quietly watching my friends achieve all of their goals. And I love movies in empty theaters. I love walking in soft rain. I love doing things a younger me would have considered fucking insane. I love reading a good book on those rare perfect days. I love the smell of baked bread, especially homemade. I love comedy clubs in foreign towns, parents that were parents when mine weren't around. The drop in your stomach as the roller coaster is beginning to fall and the shared joy of good food and strong alcohol. The chills after discovering and writing a decent tune, but more than all of it, I love you. Mm. And most of my poems are love songs. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's unfortunately <clears throat> a, a hole into which I've kind of carved myself. And going back to you know the discomfort of calling some of these people. Um, it becomes comfortable, right? Because you find these these places in which you uh, have written for long enough, and I mean, at this point, it's probably 
uh, almost 20 years writing wow. about love. And yep. you think about that, 20 years ago I was 14. What did a 14-year-old know about love? Well, you know, <laughs> you give you give that 14-year-old 20 years and all of a sudden he's got way too many adjectives for love and not enough <laughs> adjectives for anything else of value. Um, so it's something that I am working on. It's something that I'm trying to uh, change as I as I excuse me, as I get older, uh, I'm wanting to shift my focus away from the listfulness and the, uh, the constant pining and, yeah. and uh, melodrama that is love poetry, which I love. You know, I, I obviously enjoy it. I love writing songs in it. Um, and kind of shift the way that my favorite artists have into writing about, you know, bigger picture kind of stuff. Okay. Less selfish stuff. <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't call that selfish I mean you're making a very like poignant observation about you know just the small things the subtle things and there's a there was a line I can't remember exactly how it went but it was kind of along the lines of um, like bathing in misery and moving on willingly mm. I, I think that's kind of how it went yes yes yeah right? yeah we we um, I think it's I think it's a beautiful thing and, and, and part of this poem it's a beautiful thing as we get older, in particular as the responsibilities that are weighed upon us as adults uh, continue to gain weight while we continue to kind of lose, uh, or I, I don't want to say we, we is such a collective term. <laughs> I have lost focus on so many of the things that drove me, right? The, yeah. the desires and, you know, I was an 18-year-old kid at one point who thought my band was going to make it, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's something beautiful in despite being an adult who has all this crushing responsibility and all this all this truly sad things yeah. happen around and in your circle choosing every single morning to wake up and be like you know what? I'm going to do it all over again yeah. Um, so yeah it, it's a I don't think depression is in the minority anymore um, I don't know if it ever was but I, I, cer I certainly don't believe it's in the minority now I think a lot of people struggle with it and so it's kind of one of those things that's beautiful to look around at all of your friends and all the people that take that silent struggle on every single day and choose to go out and be like you know what I'm going to go work and I'm going to go get coffee and I'm going to add value and add meaning and add purpose to my life in a very intentional way I think that's beautiful until I'm scared to call the people that I'm supposed to write poems about <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I I respect it in other people. <laughs> Not that I'm able to uh, put it in action at all in my own life. Um, yeah, but I, I love seeing it in other people. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know. I, I see you still as, as somebody who goes out and really basically makes the most out of the time that they have. I appreciate that. I, I really do. Um, I've tried to uh, with with no small amount of effort after Hazel was born, refocus on, um, or rethink. Uh -huh, I was about to say. <laughs> and rethink through all these different things that I had kind of cast aside because there was a pivoting moment, right? There was this point where she was born and I thought, okay, well, all that's over. Um, I now am just a dad, right? And I have to focus on being the best dad that I possibly can. And that's true, right? Mm -hmm. My purpose, calling, everything in life pivots around the fact that I'm a father, but... Uh, and this this was something that I don't think I came to on my own. I don't think this was a conclusion I came to on my own, but I cannot for the life of me remember who the conversation was with that I had this. But essentially, I am a better father when I am chasing my dreams. Mm -hmm. I am a better father when I am showing my daughter the things that you can accomplish uh, with, with what is truly 
a large amount of grit and small amount of talent, right? Like, mm-hmm. I am going into this place. I've been playing guitar for uh, 16, 17 years now. I should be much better at guitar <laughs> than I am, right? So I, I don't play these shows because I have to share my talent with the world. I play these shows because I love playing music. I love sharing my music. And that is a joy, that an energy exchange in those rooms that I'm able to bring home. That's right. Uh, that I'm able to bring home to my daughter and uh, share that joy and show her, hey, you're going to find passion wherever it is. And maybe it's in music. And if it is, this is what it looks like. But what I want her to see instead of just being like, oh, well, I should play guitar is I should see how happy my dad is when he plays guitar. And whatever it is that makes me that happy, I got to hold on to that and get good at it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, get better than my dad is. <laughs> whatever that looks like. Um, and I hope everyone does that, yeah. truly. Um, so in, in some ways, that was a, uh, a, a turning point in my life, uh, as an adult at least, yeah. where I was, I was choosing to refocus. I, I pulled the guitar out, you know, pulled the guitar out of the closet and decided, you know what, I'm going to start playing. And I would play guitar for my daughter every night when she would take her bath. You know, I'd, I'd play her silly songs or, you know, the, the get ready for bed song or the, you know, um, please wash your hair song. And, uh, so from a very young age, she's, she's gotten to see that and enjoy that. And I I think that's been kind of cool. Yeah. And and she's picked up the guitar or. So (laughs) she has played guitar. Um, she has played ukulele. She has played piano. Uh, and none of them have stuck, you know, where, where like she really digs it but i mean she's nine so there's a lot of time still I, she is much more excited about doing front flips on the trampoline right now um that is what brings her joy yeah. so uh her very unathletic father is cheering her on from the sidelines trying his best to learn about gymnastics and, and what all goes into that you yeah. know um so yeah yeah i mean you definitely it's it's kind of just about exposure like what what can we expose the child to to help them figure out what moves them? One hundred percent. Like, so, so I mean, you remember growing up. What did you do? Like, what were the random things that you kind of tossed your your eggs into? Because you know, it, it's you're trying to see what latches on, mm-hmm. and your parents, I'm sure, were just trying. They're desperately to be like, okay, well, what is Jonah good at? And yeah. uh, you turned out to be good at everything. So, <laughs> how did you how did you choose where to focus? Uh, I personally, um, I did what I didn't try many things until I was in like middle school. You know, I, I largely kept to myself as a kid, um, and yeah, didn't do a whole lot. Just kind of thought and pondered and played with toys and collected cards, Yu-Gi-Oh cards specifically. Yu-Gi-Oh! <laughs> Were you pretty good at Yu-Gi-Oh? Did you I, play the game or did you a, just collect A little cards? bit, a little bit. Uh, and yeah, it was good. I was <laughs> but it's like, it, the what I found that I could do was get good at a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Like, I... The, with, that's my talent is like you can hand me something and I can get pretty good at it now a lot of my I feel like uh, a lot of my uh, me ending up liking something is partially due to the fact that I just got good at it right you have an aptitude so of course you like it yeah exactly and and you get a little bit of praise for being good at something and you're like oh I like this And, and it doesn't actually turn out that I like many of those things it just turned out that um I could pick up a camera and become a pretty good uh, a shooter for mm-hmm. video and edit and do pretty well at it. And people like the videos. And it's yeah. just like, okay, well, I think I like this. And then, so how do you choose 
and have you chosen what your what your thing is uh i i love to write i love to write i i don't i'm not so consistent at it that i'm writing every single day but it's growing more and more to be um kind of that routine where i'm I'm almost writing every day. So is that the goal to become a professional writer? Like, is yes. that your your kind of end goal? Yeah, that's my goal. So we've talked about it, but you you have a couple different styles of writing. Like, you you also write poetry, um, mm-hmm. but you also have uh, kind of goal driven books. You have you have books that are essentially focused on like, hey, this is this is a way in which I have drastically altered and improved my own life. Um, would you also dip your toes into doing fiction books? Would you also dip your toes into doing like? Would you be a kind of um, very much as you are as a person, like a, a scattered across all dif- different disciplines kind of author, you know, where you're like, I, I do this, I do this, I do this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think I think the the fiction that I do write um, does kind of tend towards more more prose mm-hmm. um, style. Anyway, it's not um, generally to me similar to a lot of other novels the way that I, I write fiction I just don't I don't know I'm, I'm not I'm still figuring out how I uh, construct fictional worlds so that sorry go ahead sorry but but when you say it is mostly prose driven are you saying maybe as you're as you're writing poetry you're creating kind of a fictional world or is it a separate thing entirely from the poetry no it's a separate thing entirely uh, it just is um manifested and the way the way that it is uh read is almost more like poetry than fiction or than than a novel rather. okay um that's interesting because that's that's the way i've always described uh patrick rothfuss and i see you have patrick rothfuss on your uh-huh, bookshelf yeah um he is a very uh poetic writer not all obviously but i just i could pick almost any page from his book uh particularly the first book and turn to a page and it's like, oh, that is a poem. That is, yeah. <laughs> it's, he, he has a ridiculous talent for just having uh, clever turns of phrases that work as poetry and as, as uh, just general prose in the book. But yeah. Oh, yeah. I lo- uh, he's one of my favorite authors, actually. I'm reading Name of the Wind right now, rereading it. It's one of the only books I will reread. I, I don't like doing things uh, twice, he says on Rethoughts. Um, I, I don't like... <laughs> Uh, you know, watching movies multiple times unless I'm sharing them with someone or, uh, you know, it's it's kind of like early dating stage. You're, you're showing all your best books and your best movies and everything. You're trying to show like, this is what I love. This is who I am. Yeah. And that's a very efficient way to get across your personality. But if given choice, you know, I watch The Matrix once and then I move on, okay. right? And, and I try to get the next thing because I'm constantly chasing what is novel, which is terribly unhealthy probably. <laughs> um, but but that is that is very much my mindset. It's like, I'm here... 90 years if I'm unlucky, 70 years if I'm lucky, right? So <laughs> uh, if if that's my time on earth, those two to three hours that you're spending investing in these forms of entertainment, this type of uh, other people's work, other people's creative work, I want to try and diversify that as much as possible. Um, Rothfuss being a rare exception because I gain something of value every single time I read him. Uh, it's almost like uh, a Bible. I've, I've referred to it as my Bible when I'm, I am feeling as though I'm, I'm not on a path that I would like to be on. Mm. Rereading Quoth's uh, path throughout. Yeah, yeah it, it's, it's a beautiful way for me to kind of recenter what is of value and what is not of, of value. Um, 
and I love the way I feel after I read it, as opposed to like Palinuk, who I, I just, you know, I read one of his books and I think, oh God, the world is burning. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everything yeah, yeah. is terrible and I was right all along. Some like the voice in your head is is louder with Palinuk and quieter yeah. with uh, Rothfuss. But it's so funny when you read Palinuk. Yeah. <laughs> the dude's clever. He is He's very hilarious. clever. Um, and he's written what is some of my very favorite books. Um, as cliche as it is, I love Fight Club. I think it's a beautiful book. I think it's beautifully written. Oh, yeah. um, Invisible Monsters was great. Rant was great. Um, I it. No. Rant is fantastic. It took me twice, I two tries to get through it because, man, the first 150 pages are tough. Why? Um, Palinuk usually is pretty quick. You know, like it, you jump right into the action and he's, he's saying funny things or something crass is happening or something gross happens. And that gets you hooked into where you're like, I'd like to see where this goes. <laughs> Rant is an oral biography. And so you're hopping between these different kind of viewpoints, learning about the story, and it's a lot slower burn, or it was for me. Yeah. Um, and if I hadn't had a very good friend suggest it to me, I would have tossed it. I, you know, I, I got 100 pages in once, and I was just like, I hate this. This is <laughs> this is terrible. Um, and now it's one of my favorites by him. I highly recommend it. I don't want to give too much away. It's, yeah. it's a... Uh, very surprising book but yeah it's very much worth a read is it so you said oral biography kind of is it like uh i mean it's probably nothing like uh name of the wind but in that book he's doing the same thing he's telling a story so when i say oral biography this is hopping between different viewpoints um think of it the, the way i would describe it is almost like a uh old school like dateline where they would go and interview different people about what what has happened um it's very similar to that so you're getting different viewpoints from different people and they are describing it so you're getting different voices uh throughout the book that's that's the best way i can describe and maybe maybe that's not an oral biography i don't know i may be uh misusing that term um which i am want to do (laughs) i I misuse terms frequently but yeah it's it's a it feels kind of like a documentary on the page if that makes sense yeah so no, that makes sense. It's it's a it's a very cool book, and I you know we talked about this previously, but Vonnegut and Palinuk are the reason that I still read. Um, yeah. You know, school shut down reading for me. I hated it because, uh, you know, it, it sucks to read a book and then have, be quizzed on it and then fail the quiz and be like, well, maybe I suck at reading, right? Like, <laughs> maybe I'm not gaining what I should. Um, and they made reading fun again, both yeah. of them. Well, I mean, you're also, you're forced to read stuff that you don't want to read, stuff that doesn't interest you in, yes. in school, you know? So, yeah, I, th- I think anybody can develop an interest around authors mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. where the, they kind of reveal... <coughs> Pardon right. me. No, you're good. Uh, but they kind of reveal what is possible in the literary world, which, yes. which you never really thought about. Yes, well, and... and... One of the things I love about both of them is how uh, gleefully inappropriate they are. And yeah. as, as a school-age kid, that's one of the most incredible things. It's part of the reason we all loved Goosebumps growing up. Like, um, it felt wrong to read Goosebumps because it's like, ooh, look at these scary stories with like the gross pictures on the front or whatever. Um, and I, I like that because it's encouraging the only way that I've, I've ever really educated myself. You know, like uh, the, the way I taught myself to use a camera is reading and watching videos and, and educating myself through all those different blogs and different things. If you don't have that backlog of being able to teach yourself through um, other types of entertainment, how to learn and how to enjoy things that are written, uh, you're, you're failing yourself as an adult. Um, mm-hmm. So, And I, I think that's a failing of the education system. I really do. I think we have to fundamentally change the way that we teach kids to look at books. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's a few things that um, the education system kind of fails to uh, kind of instill in youth, you know. Um, yeah, 100%. So, I mean, there, yeah, I think there's much work to be done mm-hmm. in that area. Well, and brief soapbox, but, but I hate the Scholastic Book Fair. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the reason I hate it is because it's, it's exclusionary to kids that are struggling. Um, you know, if, if you were in poverty, the Scholastic Book Fair is a, an anxiety-inducing thing. I think it's yeah. horrible. Um, it's also ridiculous that uh, a state-funded institution is helping throw money into this corporation. The, the, you know, um, yeah. the book fair is funded by, by Scholastic. That, <laughs> that is their thing. They are generating money on the backs of the parents of all of these kids and all these elementary schools. Mm-hmm. I would love to see, and I think this would be a really cool initiative for, for like a, a uh, government program to come in and replace that entirely. And yeah. you, you buy these books up on a discounted price or whatever, and you go in, and kids get to pick two books for free. Everyone gets two books for free. It doesn't matter. And you go in, and whatever you want to read, that's empowering to children. And yeah. that's giving them something that doesn't show you a haves and haves not, which is there is a place for that, but it's yeah. not elementary school. And instead, it's showing, hey, there's a bunch of exciting stuff out there that you haven't even seen yet, and here's your ticket to it. Here's yeah. your ticket and your choice and you're, uh, you're, you're, you're taking ownership in a way that most kids in that age group do not get to take ownership, right? Yeah. Um, it's cool to be able to make any decision, right? Like if you come home and tell your mom you'd like pizza, your mom can say no. Um, if you want to have a Coke when you get back home, sorry, you can't have Coke, you get water. Uh, they're not making many choices for themselves, but a book is a choice. Yeah. And that's pretty powerful. 100%. should put Chuck Pownook in there. I would love that. <laughs> I would love that. I... <laughs> You know, Andrew and I have talked about this. Um, he's another author. Um, and he uh, agrees with, I think it was Neil Gaiman who said, there is not a book that a child will read that is outside of their age range. If they can read it, it is their age group. Yeah. Um, and I, I agree with that. You know, they will glean from the, the text what they want to glean. And, and things that are inappropriate are generally not going to be very exciting to them to read. Yeah. Um, when you are at an age where it is appropriate, now it's exciting to read. Yeah. And... Uh, I don't think there's a whole lot of value in uh, policing that. No. Yeah. Let, them, let the kids read. Yeah. What, whatever interests them and it's like, let them pursue that. Yes. You know, because there's going to come a time when they're going to do it anyway. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you're not going to have a say. You're not going to have that ability to police it. Well, and, and that's another good argument for, you know, a book is a very safe way for them to explore those types of things. Um, you know, it, you can't really make the same argument with heroin, right? Like, they're going to yeah. do it anyway. Let's just, you know, let's get them a little bit of black tar yeah. and, and show them how it's done. That doesn't work. Um, but it does work with ideas. It does work with concepts. Yeah. And the earlier we introduce these concepts and these ideas and um, some of the sadder parts of life, uh, you know, I think it's important. Our job as parents is, is very much to give our children the longest possible childhood that we can. Uh, mm-hmm. that, is, that is a charge as a, as a parent um, because the world's going to rip it away from them as soon as it possibly can. So if you can give them enough childhood to really push them forward and, and give them all these good memories, that's a great thing. But the other piece of that is preparing them within that childhood for an effective adult life. Yeah. And so many think that giving someone a childhood is this protective bubble and it is not. Um, you can still be honest with your kids. You can still show your kids, you know, I talked to my kid about the effects of drugs. 
um, which is unfortunately very prevalent here in Amarillo. You get to see mm -hmm. the effects of what drugs do to people. And it is a powerful thing to point and say, hey, look, be careful as you get older. Be aware of what you're putting into your body. Be conscious of the way that it's affecting other people around you. And, um, you know, as long as you lead with kindness, I think kids should be exploring very difficult topics and um, understanding them because they're a lot smarter than anyone gives them credit for. Oh, yeah. They're very intuitive. Yes. Yeah. More so than us, for oh. damn sure. We lose, we lose a little bit of touch with that unless you, unless you continuously practice it. I mean, that's, that's kind of part of, um, you know, you mentioned prolonging their childhood. It's like there's that intuition there. There's the curiosity there. There's the wonderment, the playfulness, the innocence. All of those things that are kind of like characteristic of childhood are, yeah, eventually, in most cases, ripped away. Yes. And... I think yeah, part of part of adulthood is becoming a child again. Yes, yes. I, um, who is it? Modest Mouse. I think you spend your whole life looking for the adult that you are, but then you spend the rest of your life looking for the child you were. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's a beautiful turn of phrase, but it's true. Um, and and sad that I I really don't think anyone is capable of tr truly one hundred percent returning back to the the joy innocence and uh naivety of childhood yeah and, but at the same time i don't think uh i think naivety is kind of an unfair one i don't i don't think that is necessarily a trait of childlike because you have naive adults who are not exactly childlike it, it is kind of a an ignorance and ignorance is not it it is not so a childlikeness is to me like even though there is some ignorance or naivety, there's still the wonderment. There's still the the curiosity as to still asking the question, regardless of whether they're naive or not. You know, yes. still still asking the why. Why is it this way? Why is it that way? Instead of just accepting, you know, like oh, okay. Well, I I, I love to use the word wonderment. Um, last night I was playing It Takes Two, which is a fantastic co-op game. If if you uh, end up finding a, a, a girl that you actually really want to have like some some long-term time with this is a great game to play with them because it's it's like a you have to have two players to play it and so my daughter and i've been enjoying doing that game together in the evenings and i don't know how we got on the topic but i brought up that ufos were being talked about in congress and you know they were talking about hey these are things that we've seen and, and we're acknowledging that and we're trying to figure out how we should cope with it yeah. and her eyes lit up and she was so excited because the kids at school had been talking about how aliens couldn't possibly exist. And we had a really fascinating conversation where I was like, well, that's kind of ridiculous to not believe in aliens and believe that we're the only sentient beings in the universe. That, yeah. that doesn't make any sense. Let's talk about how big the universe is. We had a long 30, 45 minute conversation about how big the world is and about how big everything else is. And just watching her mind wrestle with those concepts was fascinating because it was coupled with wonderment. It's yeah. not frustration as a kid. It's not like a, oh, whatever, schluff it off because that doesn't make me money and it doesn't make me happy. It is yeah. just a fantastical, my brain's going to explore this the rest of the week. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and then you see also uh, very early sometimes kind of the loss of, well, I, I guess I guess more of a tendency to defend what they think they already know. and But I would argue they usually get that from the parent. Mm -hmm. who is doing that constantly yes you know? 
It's like because the child mimics the adults that are around them, unfortunately. And if the <laughs> if the parent does not, like you said, prolong that childhood, they lose that wonderment very quickly, or, uh, like I said, become very defensive about the things that they hold as true, and don't ask the questions anymore. Yes. Well, and, and I think the saddest piece of that is those kids that have kind of been robbed of their childhood by their parents or, or by people that were and again I also understand that every situation is different and certain parents are in a position that is, is uh, mm-hmm. you know impossible it's really hard to raise kids if you are struggling to put food on the table mm-hmm. right it's really hard to be an effective parent if you are not meeting all of your basic needs before that like I understand that leads to a lot of very tragic situations and unfortunately the side effect of that is those kids tend to be the first ones to hurt the other kids you know they're they're dragging that adulthood with them into um you know their elementary schools and they're kind of the bullies they're the ones that are like they're seeing mom and dad fight or they're seeing dad be terrible to them at home and bringing that back and it's the uh (laughs) to steal from how i met your mother it's the chain of screaming you know you, you can't hurt someone that's higher up than you you know your boss yells at you you go yell at your wife and your wife yells at the kids and it's this big chain of screaming um kids do that too you know when when they are hurt they know they can't go back on their parents who they go to the weak kid on the playground or the or the kid that still loves butterflies yeah um and they try to snuff that out they try to take something back yeah well you know there's there's also this aspect of we're all just big children yeah we're all just giant you know kids you're giant you work out a lot more <laughs> yeah, yeah no but you know the parents who are doing that are still operating on a, this adolescent level of consciousness of of a mindset uh, their their development has had been stunted at some point and there's frustration there oh there's, yeah and and what i kind of uh describe happening is you are angry about your childhood ending your childhood is not, is has not been prolonged right somebody came and took it away from you because it happened mm. to them then you do it to your kids and then those kids try to do it to other kids because they want theirs back yes or they see that it is on they 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 feel deeply somewhere that it is unfair. I like that. I like that viewpoint a lot. I, th- I think that's accurate. Um, it's kind of like the shadows. The, the shadows of, you know, I see a quality in this person that I want and I hate it. Yes, yes. Well, it's, it's the same <laughs> reason we, we sometimes fight with our children. Because we see our own failures reflected back at us. The things that we are not good at are much more profound whenever you're trying to raise someone to be good at everything, right? Yeah. Um, where do you, th- I'm curious, where do you think you lost your childhood? Where do you think that pivoting point was for you? Uh, you know, you know, I, um, <laughs> I'll be honest. I don't remember much of my childhood in the sense that there were so many pivotal moments uh, as much as I just remember observing a lot and living a, a lot of things vicariously, um, but then also having uh, kind of a, a, a asshole of a sibling who was 
muting me all the time, you know, kind of pushing me down. Um, I and I don't think I was equipped with um, how to articulate what's going on internally as a kid, and I had a lot of things going on in my head, and I didn't really know why, but and I still don't know why. I don't. I don't. I don't know what at what age or what moment uh, I feel my childhood was, you know, quote, taken from me. Um, innocence or wonderment. I feel that I have always been curious and I am still curious. And some days what bogs me down is that I want people to feel better than what they feel. And it hurts. Like, I want... I want people to not be so fixated on these things that are actually making them miserable. The, the bathing in misery and willing to do so and not, and kind of losing, you know, the, the things, those subtle things that, I mean, kind of, kind of your whole poem is to what, what came up for me is like, there are these things that are so subtle that we love, that we think are beautiful and we no longer see them as beauty at some point. You yes. no longer see them. At, at some point, we forget that we love this. At some point, we forget how amazing a thing is. Mm -hmm. Because it's small. Because we start measuring it against other things. And I think, I think uh, part of my loss of, child, of childhood is uh, I feel overwhelmed by... The things I want to discuss, the, the the messages I can't get across by the books I need to read or feel like I need to read so that I can better understand how to get these, uh, how to describe what's going on. Is that feeling overwhelmed, is that a time problem? Is that a scope of the issue problem? It is It is more of a, uh, what I've come to find is that it is a, it is more of a, um, a need to fix things and an inability to do so because you can't change anyone. Right. You know, and, and I, <laughs> I think, I think as a young kid, I became, uh, you know, kind of more of an, an adult uh, and would try to take care of people. And then now I'm battling as an adult that I can't, I can't, I can't fix anyone. I can't heal anyone. I can't do any of those things because uh, one thing that I say now is is that I think any practitioner of health and wellness should be guiding their uh, patient or uh, client back to themselves as their ultimate healer. Like you have to do it. You mm -hmm. have to do the work. You have to show up. You have to choose. Yeah, there is there is a personal onus as a piece of uh, your, your healthcare. Like, drugs only get you so far. Uh, your, your healthcare provider, uh, you know, looking at you and, and doing things over, that is a piece of health. That yeah. is a piece of overall health. Um, the largest piece is what you're doing day to day. Yeah. It's like we talked about earlier. What are you putting into your body? Are mm -hmm. you working out? Are you uh, effectively managing your moods through, you know, going on long walks, having conversations with friends, and ensuring that you have a support system? Yeah. Um, and, and when those things are lacking, are you capable, able to recognize that and fix the problem? Mm -hmm. um, 
yeah, I think it's I think it's incredibly valuable. But I I do want to I, I want to contest one piece because you <laughs> you said that you can't change anyone or or, or um, something to that effect. You said you, you know you're not you're not able to do uh, have that profound effect on other people, and I, I disagree. I think that's part of the reason that you're an author. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's part of the reason that you do the things that you do, even with this podcast. Yep. You are reaching out to other people, and I I know myself and I know Andrew have both been impacted by conversation. I've told you this multiple times. Conversations that we've had at uh, Palace, I leave enriched thinking about things differently. And I think that's the goal that you talked about wanting to, to accomplish. Yeah. You definitely hit it on a, on a micro level. Um, you know, because I don't work out as much as you. Macro level <laughs> guys that do work out as much as you. Um, but yeah, I, I'm very appreciative for that. And I think that's something that's profound and still very important. Yeah, and, and that is that is something uh, that I address in rethoughts about page i think it's it's more about planting a seed than changing anything and sometimes seeds don't take sometimes seeds do and so but but it is now um i don't want to hold myself accountable for the change that i'm trying to make it it is now you know just casting out seeds you know love that planting planting one here sometimes the soil's no good. Sometimes I need seeds planted. Mm-hmm. You know, I, sometimes I need something to grow, um, and I need people in my life who will plant those. Yes. And um, there's just a, the the differentiation is that I am pulling away from needing to change anyone, needing right. to needing for that plant to grow. You know, it's like okay, well, it's theirs now. It is. And, it, and you know when it comes to our conversations, I it, none of that is to say that I would ever stop having those types of conversations, even though I feel over overbared by you know, overwhelmed by um, that those that uh, thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it. I would never stop having those conversations. I I, I think those types of conversations and. I'm not really sure the, the right way to frame this, but I think they are one of the more important pieces of uh, adulthood because it's so much mm. harder as you get older to make friends. It's so much harder to uh, find those really close bonds, you know? Yeah. And so... Why do you, I, think, why do you think that... Is? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, okay. yeah, we'll, we'll jump back to that. Yeah, but we'll hop on. I, I think when you're growing up, almost every conversation is a deep conversation because uh, you have so little dragging you away from those things right so so i remember staying up very late at night talking about literally everything from from god to you know the ancient roman empire right like you're you're covering this weird range of just things that are interesting to you and you're sharing the way you feel in those moments you're sharing the the whatever's inside of us and we tend to guard that i tend to guard that Mm. a lot more as i get older um, because people are more reckless and more careless as they get older. And so you, you end up uh, protecting yourself from putting yourself into a position that is vulnerable. And I think that's what these conversations are so good at, is putting us into a position that we are vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and that's a powerful thing. It's a very powerful thing. Yeah. And I'm sorry I interrupted you. What were you going to No, you go, I, I interrupted you to ask the question. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> Wait, your turn. <laughs> No, I was just gonna say. I was just asking. Why do you think that is? That it's so difficult to make friends as you. Um, I I would say in my own life, I find it very difficult to trust. Um, huh. I I also 
think that life became more busy. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I have my daughter half the week, and then when I don't have her, I should be working, right? Like, like right now, I should be editing a wedding film. Um, I should be calling those people I've been avoiding calling. <laughs> uh, there, there, there's always, and this is what's so drastically different from childhood, there is always something I should be working on. Um, and so what I have tried to do, and not to great effect, but something I'm actively trying to do is shift my thinking from, here's this list of tasks. And instead, try to say, I need to interrupt that list of tasks with something that is focused on me. And sometimes that's playing Call of Duty, right? Sometimes that is going on a 45-minute walk in the evening and listening to my podcast. And sometimes that's hanging out with you, grabbing a coffee and playing chess. Where those interruptions to things that make me money, um, things that keep my house running, things that keep my life in order are part of what keep my house running and keep my life in order and keep my brain in order like that. It, it goes back to what we talked about with, uh, you know, taking care of yourself personally. It's easy to, to neglect friendships. Um, yeah. But I'm juggling that schedule against your schedule. You are also an adult who is busy and has a job and, and you have a real job. Um, you know, I'm, <laughs> I can leave my house at any point. Like I, I complain a lot for a guy that has a lot of flexibility from, <laughs> from scheduling, right? Um, so there's, there's just... It's a scheduling problem, honestly. I think that's most of it. That's why it's hard to make friends. Okay. What do you think? Well, it's partially time. Yeah, for sure. Um, you do mention uh, we stop having these deep... Con- like when we're kids, we have all kind Or younger, we have all kinds of deep conversations. We have um, kind of just no distractions from... Just diving straight in, mm-hmm. you know. I think that as we grow, though, we accept this narrative that we're supposed to not be vulnerable, and it just kind of gets reinforced as you go. And I'm I'm not really sure why. I I love I I will dive I will continue to dive right in. Mm-hmm. It's kind of just what I tend to do. I don't really have a lot of patience for. It's kind of the surface level things. You know? I respect I, that about you. I really do. <laughs> um, I, I also think, though, you, you can probably empathize with the people that are more protective of that. And, and I think you've seen, we're both kind of open books on stuff. I can come up and ask you about pretty much anything, and you're willing to talk to me. And I think that's a really powerful thing. And it means you are more trustworthy in my mind than someone who's not. Yeah. Um, but I also can sympathize with, with the people who, if I come up to them and I'm like, hey, man, like, let's talk about your trauma from this week. They're, they're immediately going, I would like to talk about the weather and <laughs> my favorite new album that just came out. And, yeah. you know, the, the fact that I'm mowing my lawn this weekend, right? Like, those things are safe. And I think that's something that is harder to feel as you get older is safe. Okay. So I think on this subject... There is, um, what is the best way to put this? So we've introduced, we've introduced fear into, um, relationship, right? Um, with insecurities and we, we fragment into these different, uh, segments of our psyche so that we can cope with life. So right. that we can 
you know, hide certain aspects aspects of us that might have been that made up might have embarrassed us at one point, might have uh, you know been the subject of some bully's attempt to humiliate you or whatever else, or a the subject of rejection, a reason for rejection. Sure. By someone, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever. And we make an attempt to mask up. And what I find on this subject is that people want to go deep. They want to go deep. They don't know how. They don't remember how. And sure, there's, there's a few people in their lives, hopefully, that they can do that with. But if, you, if we sit down, and there's, there's this kind of just this art of prying, right? It, it, it is it's not so much a forceful thing, but an invitation. You know, it's like, yes. it's like you make an inquiry into somebody else without the intention of you showing your depths. Yes, yes. You, you splash around in the puddles for a little bit, and then you sit, you sit at the, the edge of their pool, and you say, you want to you wanna swim? You want to go to the deep end? You want to... And it's just like a kind of... I, a, I said an art of prying. But it's like you're handing them the pry bar. And you're saying... Help me out. You want to open up? Yeah. Let's do this. It's... I, I love... I love that you brought this <laughs> up. Um, it reminds me of a podcast I listened to recently. And I, I want to say that she called that swallowing the nail. Okay. Um, but what this girl would do is she would say, I, I got tired of going to these conferences for work and meeting these people that I wanted to get to know and all we could talk about was what we had done that day, what the weather was like and what food we were having that night and that's a frustrating thing to navigate so instead she would swallow the nail and she would go up to them and ask incredibly invasive off kilter questions and she would come in and she would say hey, who's your last sex partner? Alright and what that does is it catches these people off guard but also we don't like to disappoint people in conversation yeah. And so it ended up being this point where they're like, well, uh, you know, I went on a date with this person and it introduces you to something that is a, a glimpse into their personal life. Yeah. And because it's such a um, invasive question, it opens them up to ask the same of you. And, and so you both can, can kind of lose the facade and get down, right down into it. And, and I love it. It's the same reason I've, I've talked about. I think it's important to curse um, because I don't trust people that don't curse. And so... Uh, and I've, I've checked this against several other people. Um, generally, if I'm working a wedding or, or something like that, I'll drop a, a shit somewhere, right? Like, just to kind of see how it fits in the room. And sometimes it's a bad thing. Sometimes it's like people kind of, oh, you shouldn't <laughs> say that, right? And I know to watch my language. But if, if someone hears me say that, many times, I would say 80% of the time, their shoulders relax. And they're like, uh-huh. okay, we're all on even playing ground. I can curse. I can relax. I can actually have a conversation. We can joke around. And I don't have to stress about this person's feelings. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what we're doing is just trying to figure out, like, how honest can I be with you? Totally. So yeah. swallow the nail. Yeah. I think one of my flaws, I don't know, maybe it's not a flaw, but I will trust until you give me a reason not to. Yeah, that is a flaw. And so, no, I don't. It'll bite me in the ass quite often. Yeah, I'm sure. Like, I'm sure. Well, I, Why are you at like the that? same time? At the same time, I can the the reason not to like if you, when I say you, until you give me a reason not to. I mean, it can it can happen like that. It could be you snap at somebody 
or you talk shit about the waiter or whatever. There, there, or I just have a feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you just gave me a reason not to just by the way you you're carrying yourself towards me, you know, or the tone of your voice or whatever. Or you know, I mean, it depends. It, I think it, that it, feeling. I I think more people should put more weight behind that feeling. I I would say I've. I cannot recall being wrong about that feeling. Yeah. If that makes sense. And maybe that's because I have confirmation bias. I'm like, oh, I feel weird about this person. I'm looking for everything wrong with them. But I, I do actually believe that that is a thing in our nervous system that is constantly telling you who is cool and who is not cool to be yourself around. Yeah. But at the same time, how much of it is just a reflection of what is going on in me? And so what comes up for me is if somebody's getting. Uh, mad at me and it's bothering me and I get mad back at them and there's like this there's a back and forth of uh, I'll give you an example there at, at a party right there's this guy that came up to, to me and this girl that I was talking to at the party we were just having a conversation I mean I just met this girl and I just met this guy like 30 minutes ago we shook hands never met him before he's drunk already um, and he walks up to me about like 30 minutes later while I'm talking to this girl and he says like you want to go outside let's go outside yeah well we could take this I'm like I don't even know what I did to this guy like I, I don't think I, I don't know I don't know how I bothered him I don't know what's going on he's probably just drunk and you know I she and she's getting mad she's getting so pissed off because this guy's him? picking a fight yeah she's getting so pissed <clears> off <throat> that this guy's picking a fight with me and I haven't done anything and I look at him and I, I said no man I don't want to I don't want to go outside we're friends why would I why would I do anything to hurt you you know like why would I I, I don't remember exactly how I said it this was a few years ago but it was like I am dissolving this and, and, and showing him, you know, he he wanted to find himself, he wanted to see himself in me, the same energy reflected back towards him. And instead, I showed him a different reflection and I said, I, I showed him what he gets to be instead. And how did he respond? Like, what was the reaction? It, it dissolved, he was like, you're right. My bad, man. It was just like, and, and he was drunk. Like, I, right, right. He was definitely, you know, belligerent, like just shwasted. But how'd the girl handle this? She. That sounds stressful for her. It. It was well, she initially. Like I said, she she got mad, and then after you know, I was like, oh, hold on, you know, just, just give me one sec. Like this isn't a problem, um, unless you just start swinging. Then <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. There's no other, you know outcome other than it gets physical I guess but I I see I I see something else in it I see that I can get mad but I'm not that and I'm not going to uh, attach myself to that I'm not and I I trust I trust that this individual is not responding coherently and I I trust what I actually see in this person and that is uh exactly what he gets to be a potential Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. an expansion into uh, maybe a higher level of consciousness where he's at peace he's not looking for a fight well and I I recently had this conversation I try my best to remember that sometimes especially when alcohol is involved people are not themselves and 
remembering that and keeping that in mind and trying to keep your own head it's hard when someone's being aggressive when someone's coming up to you and trying yeah. to pick a fight but i think it's also important to kind of pull yourself back and say like hey this you're you probably wouldn't be doing this if you hadn't just you know blasted five beers over there and, and trying to show off for the girl and i you know i i actually wouldn't say that it's not themselves really i would say i would say that i mean because what part of them is not them would, would like, you say they're more themselves? It's like a, re- a revealing of a, of whatever is actually inside? I would say it's revealing a fragment. I would hmm. say it's revealing something. I would say that it is it is removing an inhibitor, something that they're hiding, a pain, an, an aggression. Like that that guy, that he wanted to hurt someone. And I don't know why, but he wanted to hurt someone until he didn't. And it's like there there is... Uh, just these different expressions of our psyche that come out when we're on different substances. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, that guy might not always be aggressive when he drinks. Yeah, but one thing that I would assert is that it is not necessarily that they're not themselves. It is not the self that they're typically exhibiting in a sober Hmm. setting hmm. so that's an interesting way to look at it. masks fall off they put on a different mask and mm-hmm. so it's like it's not that that mask is still not them or is not them it is still them you're getting another side of the psyche you're getting another piece exactly that's interesting i've i've i don't disagree with you um but part of the way that i, I kind of have had to rationalize some of my friends in the way that they act when they drink or when they're high or whatever is is like okay well that's that's not really them right and so it allows me to uh look at behaviors that would otherwise maybe be pretty hurtful or uh in more often cases just annoying right mm-hmm. like like it's more of just a guy you are not fun to be around right now uh yeah. and and it's, instead of seeing that as them seeing that as no that's the drug that is the thing that they are on whatever that is yeah. um but looking at it that way, it's and, also it's also them. It's it's yeah. also it's also a piece of who they they are as a human. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if I like that. Okay. So this is this is where, um, you know, I think part the I think I think there's medicine there. I think there is there's um, the opportunity. To come to them with compassion. Like with this particular individual, like I said, I could have gotten mad. I could have done that. I could have done that whole thing. I could have. We could have gone outside. Uh, I could have watched him won. trip over himself. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. But we that we could have let that play out. But that wouldn't have been me coming coming at this with with you know a deeper knowledge of this. This is just an expression of pain. This isn't an expression of fear. It's not an expression of this person actually wants to hurt someone and it is an expression of he is hurt. That is a, that is a much more palatable way to look at that. I like yeah. that. And so it is not that, uh, you know, it, because, okay, so, so what, what <laughs> and uh, you, I know you don't do this intentionally, but like partial, uh, uh, reasoning uh the reasoning behind why we do and and convince ourselves that this isn't the that person that they aren't themselves this is the drug is that we have to cope with 
the dynamics of our relationship with this person. Right, and the and dichotomy so, between the person we're used to hanging out with and the person they are yeah. now. And yeah, so, and so it is, it is now not about them and in their pain. It is about me and avoiding being hurt by the parts of them that are in pain. Mm-hmm. You know, it is... It is uh, uh, You're protecting your of, own heart. Exactly. Yeah. For lack yeah. of a better word, it's, it's a self-centered approach to the relationship. Mm-hmm. And it, which is fine. We, we all got to protect ourselves. But at the same time, it, what if we came to uh, that situation, we approached that situation from a position of compassion and wholeness and that we're able to see the wholeness in that that other person and then reflect it back towards them. I, I, I don't disagree with you, but I would say that also goes back to what you were talking about previously, um, where you said, you know, you can't, uh, I'm going to butcher this, but you can't save everyone, right? Like yeah. you have this empathy that you want to share with, with everyone, um, but now you've shifted to just planting seeds. Yeah. So that's the type of compassion I think is okay to show where you, you know, this was low investment, right? Yeah. You told the guy, I'm not going to go outside with you. You're my friend. Yeah. That's a low investment. What I think is, is difficult to pull away from is when it is someone that you care about deeply and they are kind of going down this path of uh, expressing their hurt and anger and uh, self-hatred or whatever through, um, you know, these mind-altering uh, drugs that they're doing. If you become invested in that compassion, if you become invested in like, hey, I want to help this person overcome that thing, it ends up, I think in many cases, dragging you into an impossible situation. Yeah, and uh, I I will um, state that I didn't say help them. We're not talking about helping that friend, but there are the, the there's an opportunistic uh, mindset that we can approach it. So right, where, what, what would you say instead of help? Like what, what would be a better word there? Well, okay. So, so in my current mindset in in the, the, what I'm trying to tend towards now, the planting seeds, also the reflecting, the mirroring people, um, loved ones, strangers, just like that, that individual who came up to me and, you know, wanted to take this outside. And it's like, no, like, I don't, I don't think that's actually what you want to do. And what I would differentiate between uh, like I don't, I'm not going to go out of my way and say, "Hey, we need to talk." You act this type of way when you, you know, drink too much. Mm-hmm. You act this type of way when you smoke too much, or, or I mean, there's there's so many things. You act this type of way when you're uh, lustful. You know, you see that girl over there, like you. You're turning into a giant douche, right? right <laughs> you know, right. It, there's just there's so many examples of what could come up, and it, and they're not. It's not taking time to have many interventions, but it is uh, reflecting back towards them when they're looking at you as a mirror, and it, it it's like you are. Uh, they're approaching you and they're saying something and they're they're having that type of interaction. And then you change their experience of what they expect to happen next. Mm-hmm. Because that's what they're doing to confirm the identity that I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an aggressor. I'm an angry person. And there are other angry people out there. There are other hurt people out there. There are other people who are in pain. And so that guy walked up to me to find himself in that mirror. And I showed him somebody else. Mm-hmm. And so it is. It is now. It is about taking those opportunities 
But when they approach that mirror to see and confirm that identity, to show them a different one. Hmm. So, and so it's not about me changing anyone. It is about revealing back to them, you know, guiding them back to themselves, guiding them back to uh, what, what you get to potentially be. Mm-hmm. So what would you say to, because that's in an aggressive situation, um, I think it's a great solution. I think it's a really powerful solution. I think it's something that diffuses the situation. Uh, and I love that. But let's say someone is, um, you know, partying a little too hard and coming over to you with, with joy. Um, you are recognizing compassionately and empathetically that there is a, a long-term problem there. But reflecting back that joy in, in my mind also seems like a compassionate thing in, in that regard. So how would you navigate that in, in a similar fashion to become that mirror to someone that is, is not necessarily being a jackass, you know? Yeah. Like, so, so the long-term problem being like uh, a, maybe developing a dependency on that to feel A joy? dependency. I, I, think, um, I think a dependency or, or maybe even like long-term health type problems, you know, where, where you're talking about like, okay, well, if you are alcohol dependent, um, you know, I, I think it increases risk of diabetes. It increases, you know, just general overall yeah. health uh, degradation. But, but I'm not even just talking about alcohol. I'm talking like, you know, what if, what if your friends, you know, coked up at a party, uh, which if you party in Amarillo, you've seen someone coked up at a party. Um, how, uh, what is the best way, do you think, to lead with that compassion in that mirror that shows like, because um, there's plenty of people I don't care about, but there are a few people that I do. Yeah. And without intervention, without someone stepping in and saying, hey, like this bugs me. Um, I don't know how you are supposed to uh, help. And I really do believe in help being the right word there. Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, this might not sound very compassionate. Right? <laughs> well, sometimes the most compassionate things don't sound very compassionate. Well, you know, I, I've had this type of conversation with a few people where, um, you know, they have a, a sibling or a relative parent who is alcoholic or drug addicted or um, any of those types of um, lifestyles and we've, we've had this discussion where um, I get I get it it hurts like I've, I've known people I've been close to people and I've been and I've, I've seen death seen people die who were dependent on something, who were, de- who were alcoholics, who were um, drug addicted. And sometimes the most compassionate thing we can do is let them experience something abundantly painful. And so what we tend to do is try to change it for them. But mm-hmm. a lot of people mm-hmm. t- and, and say say I'm doing this for you. It's like no, you're we're not. We're not. We are doing it because it hurts me to see them do this. Mm. 
it is a, it is another way for you to cope mm-hmm. and and you you know there will come a time where something really terrible happens and you'll feel guilty for not helping but at the same time if you extend if you take away their pain if you try to take away that pain if you try to to change it you're or ex, you're essentially extending rock bottom and as far as early intervention goes it's like um I I would approach it from a non-judgmental place. Um, when when we're compassionate, sometimes what we forget is uh, being non-judgmental. And what they're doing, what any of us are doing, is not necessarily wrong. You know, like the ways that we cope, the ways that we right, do right. these things. It is. All of us just trying to do our best, trying to um, figure out what works. And <clears throat> there's a there's a um, speaker writer. His name is Peter Crone, and uh, one thing that he says about addiction is, you can't get enough of anything that almost works. And so it is. All of us trying these things that almost work, mm-hmm. but will never quite get us there. And so. At some point, those things will no longer serve you. And you have to get to that point where... Because I mean, it, w- it won't happen immediately. You'll, you will do these things. And there's some people who are like, that wasn't for me. Right. But So that thing didn't really help them escape. And so they... Uh, but, but then there's the individuals who will do it and then do it again and then do it again and then continuously chase that first high, the feeling of the first high... Yeah, you're chasing the dragon. Until hedonic tolerance comes in and it's no longer enough. There's no there's no high there. Mm-hmm. It does nothing for you. And so then you try something else until that doesn't work. So um, I'm a firm believer that uh, if we are to truly be compassionate and selfless and, and people... And, those types of circumstances you you have to let them hit rock bottom and uh, this is a point um, that we brought up in a previous podcast that um, pain and beauty are the only two things that change us and that they are intimately connected Hmm. and something has to be and and I'll take for example uh, your child being born Mm -hmm. it's like you picked up guitar you decided uh, what kind of dad you wanted to be, what you wanted to show to your child that is possible. And you did it. And it took the beauty in the moment of you know your child being born, you realizing and having this revelation that I am a father, this is beautiful. But it also, like I said, pain and beauty are intimately connected. It also, somewhere in locked in that, that uh, experience, is the pain that your daughter ends up growing to be just like me yeah. and is not pursuing anything. Right. And is not chasing their dreams. Is not it doesn't believe that they can be anything that they want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it re- but it required that. It required that's that experience for you to change. Mm-hmm. You weren't gonna do it because I told you you Man, you haven't picked up the guitar in years. Mm-hmm. What the heck, man? 
It's like there's no amount of me saying those kinds of things intervening is going to change it. I mean, unless that that it, it experience is so emotional, maybe we're lovers and I'm like, I'm leaving you. <laughs> yeah, the, then that's and the pain part. That's, that's the, the pain, pain part. part. Right. Exactly. Yeah, and then, and, but, in, but locked in that, that experience is the beauty of a, of a relationship that is encouraging and supportive and we're both pursuing our dreams potentially. I mean, there's just so much potential there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I like, you know, we talked at the beginning about poetry being distilling things. That, that is a perfect distillate, right? <laughs> like, uh, you know, beauty and pain. Um, and those are the parts that shape us. Hmm. That's okay. something I want to I, I, I want to think on more because it's kind of interesting to if you are distilling your life down to those those moments those pivots yeah uh, I mean, what a cool way to do it um, you know the it was this beauty was this pain I like that a lot I yeah. like that a lot yeah go go back and think on any of your significant changes mm-hmm. and what if any of those were not due to something so beautiful or so painful, mm-hmm. I mean, really, it's both. But what what was so painful that I had to change, and what was so beautiful that I had to change? No, and I mean, I, I wanted to fight you on that. I wanted to push back and come up with something. But truly, I, I, I think that's a pretty accurate representation of uh, what shapes us. Yeah. Um, and particularly as we get older. And maybe this goes back to the childhood thing, but but so many of the things that shape us as we get older are the painful things that it's it's important to uh, seek out and and sometimes I think pursue uh, more aggressively the beautiful things. Right? Um, I recently made a trade off and did not go catch a band down in Dallas. It was inconvenient, mm. um, but in my mind, it is a that's one of those beautiful things and it's one of the things that's very easy for me to trade off right because because it doesn't make me money it loses me money um and it it takes a not insubstantial amount of time but the most formative pieces of my entire life have been uh around concerts music um you know some of the most profound and informative conclusions i've come to in my life have been during concerts have been during uh, these shows because it's just it's something that moves me mm-hmm. and so the fact that i traded that out you know means that i i missed out on an opportunity for yeah. a beautiful moment yeah it's interesting oh yeah and i mean kind of what your poem also alluded to earlier is that beauty can be found in any any and everything i mean pain can too mm-hmm well, and what are you looking for? Yeah. Um, in Fahrenheit 451, one of my very favorite pieces of that book is very early on, and when he's walking with the the young girl, and she talks about how when you crunch fall leaves, they smell like cinnamon. Mm. I don't think that's actually true. I, I think that was just a beautiful line in a book, but it's it's a testament to the way that kids look at the world versus we look at the world, yeah. right? Um, being fascinated by the smells of things and the mm-hmm the crunch, the sound, the um, tiny bits of magic that make up this entire world that we just become numb to. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important. Really important to not lose touch with. Yeah, I mean, the senses, the senses are amazing. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. have so many senses that you'd actually, I mean, people don't really think about 
take for granted. I mean, because there's there's some that are like very like active. Uh, I forget the word, but you they kind of construct the main experience. You know, sure. Sight very reliant. Seeing seeing people are very reliant on sight. Right. Uh, a lot of your brain is um, correlated and dedicated to processing sight. I mean, and putting it in its places and constructing this map. Um, and then, you know, you have sound, smell, taste. Um, but then there's several other ones that are, and like I said, I forget the word, but they're, they're not, a, they're not as active. They're not as, uh, conscious. Right. You're not as aware of them. Like, uh, proprioception. You lost me there. I don't know what that is. So, proprioception would be um, so your awareness of your body in space. Okay. And so I know, without looking, that my arm is bent at a slightly ninety degree angle. Right. And I know that because I have receptors in my elbow, and it's connected to my brain, and I can I can feel it. I can reach for something, um, just glance at it, then reach for it, grab it, because I understand I have a depth perception and, and I understand how far I can reach when my arm is elongated. I can grab it, bring it up to my mouth, and drink from a mug. Mm-hmm. And so there are people um, who have lost the sense of proprioception who cannot walk without focusing on their feet, who sometimes collapse when they close their eyes, who have to look at their arm to bend it and, How interesting. and acknowledge that and make sure, you know, really focus on bending their arm and then picking up something up, picking something up. That would be terrifying. It, and <laughs> it, is, it is one of those senses that we just don't think about we we have this we have this ability to sense our body in space and we don't really even think about it and so one one thing that I like to do is this meditation and I want to record a meditation uh, like a guided meditation guiding people through senses mm-hmm. and really acknowledging um, for example what is your body doing in space stand on one foot for a moment you know extend your arms can feel that they are extended that they're stretching that they're you know that you you cannot go any further right well and it, it goes back to being present yeah you know understanding all of that requires a not insubstantial amount of focus yeah you know things that we generally overlook you're you're able to kind of trick your mind into appreciating a little bit more yeah when are you going to do the guided meditation um uh, i i want to write out a script for it and um, so I'd be going through, I actually have a, I have a rethoughts post about senses and it, uh, introduces a practice that I do. Um, so I, I, I do this thing where like I'll be in the shower and I'll deprive myself of sight and then I will see what everything sounds like. I'll get closer to the wall and I'll, I'll hum towards the wall. I'll turn to the water and I'll hum towards the water. I'll get into the water and, you know, hum towards like the further wall, and just pra- like play with the sound, the acoustics of the room, 
and then you know sometimes I'll close my ears and listen to the water you know playing off my skull listen mm-hmm. to the acoustics of my skull and then um, you know play with proprioception and, and glance at you know the shampoo bottle and then close my eyes and then reach for it and then just kind of test my body in space then test my balance your vestibular sense it's a dangerous place to test, test your balance well <laughs> I'm pretty good balance <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I'm but, glad you're still here <laughs> yeah right no but uh it is um there there's also itch uh temperature pressure um temperature might actually be hot, uh, broken up in hot and cold I can't quite remember but then pain tickle um and there might be one more I already said proprioception but then also your main ones and so there's just all of these different things that are informing your experience it's like what is what is a burning stove without pain and there's reports of some there are some people that don't don't, feel yeah exactly their pain receptors are they're all screwed up yeah Mm -hmm. I mean, they could still get hurt, but oh, they don't yeah. know they're hurt. Yeah, which is almost more dangerous. It uh, is. If you think about it, you well, you have no urgency. You have no sense of urgency to to get a stab wound fixed, mm-hmm. for example. If it doesn't hurt, I mean, then nothing's wrong. Right. But there is something wrong because you're going to bleed out. Yeah. So you need you need pain to inform your decision of going to the hospital. Hmm. I mean, you could reason through it. You could rationalize, oh, I should probably go to the hospital because I'm bleeding. But let's say you didn't even notice. Well, and and think about how much pain shapes your day-to-day experience. You know, like I I recognized yesterday, oh, I need to stretch more Mm -hmm. um, because my back hurt. You know, like, I'm okay, I'm not stretching often enough. Or, uh, you know, it was a lot harder to pick something up than normal. So I'm like, okay, well, I, I haven't been working out enough. I need to go lift, you know. Uh, little minor things throughout my day that are minor pains mm-hmm. become ways that I shape my, you know, my next week. Like, okay, well, I need to take care of this because I'm 34 and <laughs> I still have time to fix it. Like, <laughs> yeah, before I can't use my knees. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Cool, and that's my that's my fear. I don't ever want to reach, you know, a point in which I am. Uh, you know, we talked about this earlier. I don't want to be a burden. I don't want. Uh, to be an inconvenience to the people I love and care about. Yeah. And so I am trying my best to set up my life in such a way that like I live until I, I am ready to die uh, with a modicum of independence. And part of that is paying attention to your pain. Mm-hmm. And then acting on that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, listen to it and make changes. Exactly. Be willing to make those changes. So You are your ultimate healer. Yeah, you're damn right. You're damn right. <laughs> we discussed that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're nearing an hour and thirty minutes. Damn. So, do you have a uh, a final thought or a, an invitation for listeners? An invitation. Um, an invitation in the sense of like, like a challenge, something, something they should do. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I would say the biggest thing that I'm trying to focus on right now is becoming much more comfortable with failure. Um, the fear of failure has crippled me. Um, 
the fear of failure has stopped me from from doing a, a great number of really cool things and being more comfortable going over and over and over again and trying over and over and over again and becoming uh, someone that's not only okay with failing but, but kind of looks forward to it, uh, I think makes you a terribly more effective adult, um, worker, father, parent, whatever it is that you are, you'll be better at it if you're more comfortable failing. Hmm. Do you have any uh, like actionable steps? Mm, yes, uh, I would say uh, the easiest way to to become comfortable with failure is to take whatever it is that's in your to do list, right, um, and and choose whatever the hardest thing is. Uh, you know, for for me, um, most recently, uh, I tried to learn a, a John Mayer song that I've been putting off since I was like sixteen, right, <laughs> um, and and I, I'm still not good at it. It's a John Mayer song, and I I play guitar like a third grader, um, <laughs> but it it was a cool thing to put myself into a position where like I'm just going to learn this I'm going to try this and I filmed it and I posted it I posted that failure I posted that 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 thing because there's a piece to it that I think um, we all fear is is the rejection of other people right or, or someone laughing or someone if you are the first person to beat them to that punch if you're the first person to jump out there and be like look I screwed this up um, there's a power in that and then it diminishes the ripple effect and the fear and instead you're left with just like okay well now this is just a thing I have to practice yeah um, it was uh, into your atmosphere that was the song mm -hmm. um, so yeah that's that's what I would say is just pick whatever it is the that is the hardest or scariest thing on your to-do list and just go attempt it over and over and mm -hmm. over again because um, those failures uh, are inevitable on hard things and so you're <laughs> instead of going out there and doing the easy things and recognizing like oh man I'm, I'm bulletproof I don't think there's as much value in that it feels good and it's great to knock those things out of your list but I think there's an enormous value in tackling that really hard thing and getting your ass handed to you yeah and then saying okay that's where I need to work um, and what a, what a great way to figure out where you need to work find your pain love that nice yeah the, those small things that are easy to accomplish and tick off your list or kind of like um a self-esteem inflator yes yeah just, it's candy yeah just inflating it mm -hmm. it's yeah like huge yeah i i rewarded myself with an oreo the other day because i made a business phone call like, what? <laughs> <laughs> that's not healthy that's not that's the wrong type of dopamine um yeah it's it's important to um, and, and let's say you don't have a to-do list. I, this is another big thing. You know, it, it, some people are, are sitting out there and their, their to-do list is literally given to them by their boss, right? So you have a, a life that is um, more free of those bigger obstacle obstacles that you might not really be putting off. You need to put yourself in situations where you, you can fail. And so in, in that instance, I would say, you know, hey, are you out dating? Go ask out the, the really pretty girl. You know, if, if there's a girl sitting at the bar that you're like, oh, I'd like to, I would like to talk to her. Yeah. Do that set yourself up for failure. Um, if you are working in a job that you're unhappy in, go apply for Netflix or Google or wherever it is that you want to go work um, and fail there. Yeah. And if you don't fail, you get the girl, you get the cool job, and you move on to the next thing you're going to try and fail at. Um, attempting to put yourself in situations that are advantageous for you um, and have every potential to fall apart is part of the human experience it's part of why we're here and yeah. it's really not as hard as we make it out to be <laughs> yeah. i i uh there's there's a couple things that are extremely actionable that cost you nothing well close to 
uh, that I've, I've heard help and it's like ask people for small things and they'll, they'll a lot of times they'll say no like, uh, for example I think one of them was when you're ordering coffee or you know you're at a you know local place uh, buying something just hey can I have a discount Yes, I've heard this. I, maybe we've talked about this. Maybe. I love that. Yeah, you might have told me about it actually. It, uh, yeah, because it sets you up for. They'll probably say no, and and that is in itself kind of a failure. Yeah. Um, but it also makes you a hell of a lot more comfortable talking to people. Yeah. And uh, asking for something that you can have. You know, uh, there's also like, hey, can I have a dollar? Yeah. Just to say it to someone. Um, I can't. I can't remember who in history um, talks about this, but. They ask for uh, like a small favor from people so that they can get this person to trust them, or it fools this part. It fools other people into trusting them. Yes, yes. Well, it's it's a. Uh, I've heard the concept in in dating, but it's it's an investment. So yeah. so once I am invested in you, yeah. in in a small way, and and maybe that's buying you dinner. Yeah. Um. Maybe that's us just going and getting coffee and me covering the tip or whatever but as long as there's there's some type of exchange of value yeah i am now kind of invested in you as a person yeah. and much more invested in our relationship much more invested in our friendship yeah because i have buy-in and well this was this was explicitly talking about favors and sometimes monetary but but like explicitly saying if you just ask these people for small favors they'll it studies show that they'll you know end up trusting you more. They'll see hmm. you as somebody that they like. And so uh, I think one of the things that this person would do was um, simply, hey, do you mind if I borrow this book that you have sitting on your shelf? And then you know he, I think he says that he doesn't even read it. He does. He just takes it a week or two, brings it back. It's like thank you so much for letting me borrow this book. And then, like it fools them. And, it, and it's maybe not necessarily like fooling them, but it yeah, is... Yeah, yeah, that's a negative it, connotation. Yeah, it, it is playing on psychology. It plays on our uh, like inner mechanisms of how uh, we end up growing to know and like and uh, trust someone. I think, I think we all just want to feel as though we bring value, you yeah. know? And if, if someone asks me for something that I, I have or something that I am good at, you know, if someone asks me to help them with something or do something with them, that feels like I am valuable. Yeah. And it's yeah. without them having to articulate it. Yeah. Well, and you know, the, uh, when it comes to me asking you to do a favor, it doesn't feel like you're trying to get something from me. It doesn't mm -hmm. feel like an investment. It doesn't feel like a trade. It doesn't feel, doesn't feel like any of that. But I've had people... Where uh, and it, it's never felt that way. Like when you you've bought my coffee in the past, it's never felt that way with you. Mm -hmm. But it's like there are some times where you get this strong feeling where this person is like, I'm gonna ask, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask of something important of mm -hmm. this person someday. So I'm going to buy their. Dinner. It's a tit for tat kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. like it's like okay. Well, and I think that's why it's important for it to. That's why exchanges are so weird yeah. um, to navigate, and and why friendships. Are in some ways very difficult to navigate. You know, mm -hmm. I have friends that uh, we play Venmo tag. You know, um, <laughs> and then I have other friends where it's just like it's not Venmo tag. We're all just kind of like swapping back and forth because there's this constant flow of uh, it's almost like everything's a favor. 
yeah. you know um and i don't know i don't know the right way to navigate those kind of friendships and relationships and everything like that but i do know that there is a very different feel from when i'm going out with a friend or someone like you and going out with someone that uh does that exchange does that and, and you feel it you yeah. feel it in the moment you feel it later and it it sours literally every piece of the relationship every piece of the yeah. conversation um because it was done uh with contingency yeah there's that intention you feel that intention yes in that action yeah and it's not a good intention <laughs> yeah. yeah it's a very selfish one there's a there's a manipulation there yeah there's there's yeah it, it rings hollow yeah exactly hmm. well we have officially hit a minute. We're about to hit a minute 30, or an hour and 35. Look at us. We made it. We made it. We're the best. <laughs> We're the best that ever was. Yeah, right? Did you have any other, any uh, final thoughts? Um, no, I, I really do. I loved everything that we took, covered, man. I'm, I'm, I, I also love how we were able to jump right into it and get uh, get into some pretty heavy topics really, really quickly. Um, so th this felt great. Um, it did not feel like an hour and a half. Totally. Uh, I, I really appreciate you having me on, man. Thank you. Absolutely. We'll have to do it again. Yes, I like, absolutely. I like having repeats, and I know you don't like doing, you know, watching things more than once. Well, as long as we don't talk about the same thing next time, I think we'll. <laughs> oh, be it's fine. gonna be verbatim. <laughs> I'll, you I'll took notes. Yeah, yeah. No, that's perfect. Honestly, that would actually be very fun as a as a sort of a performance piece. Yeah. <laughs> we just dramatize it a little bit yes. more. Yeah, yeah. We both read <laughs> verbatim. That I, I would love that. Let's do it. Well, thank you all for listening, uh, Derek. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, man. Thank you for listening to ReThoughts. Follow us on Instagram at re underscore thoughts. You can also subscribe through email on our website at rethoughts.com. Follow us on wherever you listen to podcasts. That way you can keep up with our new episodes. We love hearing from our listeners, so contact us through Instagram or our website and tell us what you've been rethinking or request a topic that you'd like us to talk about. Thanks for listening.